Good morning. Did everybody get a uh, handout this morning? Okay. Oops. All right, so the, the handout that we gave out uh, has a number of pages to it. I'm just going to explain real quickly what it is. The first page is the Calvary Bible Chapel doctrinal statement, and it includes in it what we consider to be the fundamentals of the faith. In other words, you must believe these things uh, in order to be a true believer. And when I say that, I'm talking about the major doctrine section of that that page. On the back side, it does show some uh, other important doctrines as well. But um, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. You have to believe that He died on the cross for your sins and so on. So those are what we call the fundamentals of the faith. In all of the fundamentals, there must be uh, unity. All right. The second, second page, or the second section is privileges and responsibilities or fellowship in the local assembly. And then on the back side, it's um, our position paper at Calvary on the issue of um, divorce and remarriage. And then the thir third page uh, is two pages, and it has to do with the role of women in the church. It's really to show the, unique, the uniqueness of the women's role uh, within the church itself. So I hand all that out to you, not because we're going to go over it today, but because we're not going to go over it today, okay? And I want you to have this as a distinction or something different than what we're talking about today in Romans chapter 14, because I don't want there to be any confusion um, about, about those things. So as, a, as an assembly, we believe certain doctrines to be truth and that there is no exception on these doctrines, uh, fundamentals of the faith. Uh, but I want to, uh, you may not have ever heard of this guy before. He was a German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, uh, Rupertus uh, Maldinius. And it was during the Thirty Years' War of 1618 to 1648, it was a bloody time in European history in which religious tensions played a significant role. And he wrote a tract at that time, early 1600s, that uh, was on the subject of Christian unity. So as far as the papers that you have are concerned, you can just put them aside for now, because um, I don't want you to miss the point of this. All right. So in this tract, there was a title, and the title fits Romans chapter 14. This was the title, In Essentials, Unity. In Non-Essentials, Liberty. In All Things, Charity. Okay, so we would say this way maybe today. In the fundamentals of the faith, there must be unity. In non-essential issues, things that are uh, to do with your personal conscience or convictions, there should be liberty. And even if my conscience and my convictions are different than your convictions, not in the fundamentals of the faith, 
but in other areas, I must show you love and you must show me love. So in a nutshell, that is the teaching of Romans 14, but we want to go over it carefully. The Lord Jesus taught, love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Paul wrote, just, uh, we, re- we read it just a couple of weeks ago, that all of the commandments are summed up in this one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So as we study in the book of Romans, we have to realize the background of this book as well. The church of Rome was made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, people who came out of Judaism, people who came out of paganism. It was made up of slaves and masters, young and old, strong and weak Christians, And today, we have here at Calvary Bible Chapel some who come from a more conservative, maybe even legalistic background, and those who were raised in a liberal household with no church upbringing at all. And as we look at um, our convictions here at Calvary, your personal convictions, I would say that there are those who feel the importance of masking and those who don't feel the importance of masking. There are those during the COVID period of time who who believe in vaxxing. They're called the vaxxers. And there are those who didn't believe in it and they're called the anti-vaxxers. And um, so there are differences even in those areas. There are within our midst Republicans, Democrats, and dare I say it, even independents. Yet all of you call yourself believers. How can it be that you can be so different and yet all be believers at the same time? These and so many differences can create tension, uh, jealousy, judgmental attitudes, and even division in the church. And so the question is, how do you love people that are so different than you are? How do you love somebody that doesn't think the same way you do in these non-essential issues? How does the church prevent a split over issues that are neither commanded nor forbidden in the scriptures? And the answer is, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the key. In Romans 14, Paul tackles the issue of how to live with Christians who differ from you. And again, we're not talking about fundamentals of the faith. If somebody comes in and they try to disrupt the assembly, teaching false doctrine, we should have nothing to do with them. Very clear in Scripture. But that's not what we're talking about here. So again, in fundamentals, there must be unity. But the issue for us today has to do with non-essential or secondary matters where there is a wide difference of opinion and personal conviction. These are areas concerning Christian liberty. So in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. Think about the early church for a minute. The Lord, in His wisdom, went about saving people 
who were Jewish people steeped in the traditions of Judaism, the dietary law, feast days, and an abundance of ceremonial laws that regulated every aspect of their lives. Why would he save people like that? Because he loved them. He gave his son to die on the cross for them. But he also went about saving people that had been raised as idolaters, people who worshipped false gods, people who um, lived wild lives. And then the Lord brought the two people, the two groups together to form one new body, the church. So you have the Jews, you have the Gentiles, and he brought them together to form one new body, the church. And they couldn't be more different to start with. And then he says that he wants us to be united in Christ. Wow. That's quite a challenge. They, the people couldn't have been more different. The Jews found it hard to give up some of their former religious practices and would point to the Old Testament scriptures to support their stand on these issues. The Gentiles, who had never been under the law, were like Americans today who loved their liberties and wanted nothing to do with the Jewish traditions and the dietary rules and so on. Yet as believers, those idolaters wanted nothing to do with their former idolatrous behavior. They wanted to be separated from that. And in this mix of people, there were both strong believers, mature believers, and weak or immature believers. And you can imagine the strife that could have destroyed the church with such diversity. And it is interesting as you look, as you study church history, very often the things that divide the church are not the doctrinal issues. That is true sometimes, but, but more often than not, the things that destroy a local body of believers are the non-essential issues that drive a wedge between believers living together in the same church. So I want to conduct a test today about Christian liberties. Now, I don't want anybody answering out loud. I don't want anybody saying, well, of course, or something like that, okay? I just want you to think about these issues and make a mental note of your um, answer, okay? So I'm going to list, a, so this is call, I'm going to call this the Christian liberties test. Number one, is it sinful for Christians to drink wine or any other alcoholic beverage. Okay, think about it. Now, couple your answer with the thought that some believers who are saved, some new believers, have just come out of an alcoholism. Does that change your thinking on it? Okay. Number two, is it sinful for Christians to drink coffee, tea, or any caffeinated beverage, okay? You say, why would you even bring that up? Well, what if a believer had just come out of Mormonism where they forbid caffeinated beverages? 
they might have a conscience that it's wrong, it's sinful, okay? So is it wrong? Is it sinful for Christians to drink coffee, tea, or caffeinated beverages? Is it sinful for Christians to eat meat? Well, what about believers who are now believers, uh, but who were raised vegan or vegetarian? Or, or they, they are Indian believers who have just come to know the Lord, and they were forbidden to eat meat. Is it a sin for Christians to buy, sell, work, or play on the Sabbath? And be careful of your answer here, because the Sabbath is actually Saturday. It always was, it always will be the Sabbath, it's never changed. Saturday is the Sabbath, so is it wrong? Now, some Christians today, uh, some churches today, some denominations today actually believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, and all the rules that applied to the Old Testament Saturday Sabbath now apply to Christians today. So the question is, is it sinful for Christians to buy, sell, work, or play on the Sabbath? And uh, you have to ask yourself, what about a person who has come out of an Amish background? Or what about a person who grew up in uh, northern Scotland or in England where these rules applied? When I grew up in Canada, there was actually something called the Lord's Day Act where you could not do certain things on the Lord's Day. That was a, that was a federal law. Okay, it doesn't exist anymore, but that was true when I was growing up. Is it a sin for women to wear slacks, i.e. men's clothes? Uh, some believers from Eastern European countries would tell you, yes, it's a sin. Is it a sin for men to, and women to sit on the same side of the church? Well, thankfully, we have <laughs> a split group today doing exactly that. They're, they're sitting together, I should say. But in various countries, some European and some Asian countries, they would consider that sinful. Is it sinful for men to sit with their legs crossed? What? You say, yeah, in some Lebanese uh, and Arab countries, that would be considered sinful. Is it a sin to eat meat offered to idols? Now, we could have a real debate on this one. And there are many other th issues like this, including your view of politics, whether you homeschool your children or you don't homeschool them, whether you're vaxxed or not vaxxed, and on and on the list could go, whether you play cards or you don't play cards. I mean, I could list hundreds of things where there are believers who say, yes, that's sinful and uh, would condemn another believer for participating in that, those quote-unquote sins. But I want to say this, of all the things that I've just described, or all the questions that I've just asked, there is not a single one of these issues that rise to the level of fundamentals of the faith. Believers differ widely on these issues, and yet they're still believers. Some have deep convictions on these issues, and others have absolutely no conscience at all on any of these issues. So how should those who are mature in the faith, the strong believers we'll call them, deal with those who are weak in the faith, those who still have a conscience that convicts them to act in a certain way? And again, the answer goes right back to what we said at the very beginning, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to be the, the, the foundation of everything that we talk about today. So in Romans 14, Paul gives us about 13 principles to teach us 
how to love one another in spite of our differences. How can I love you when you don't agree with me on every conviction that I have, every, everything uh, that is a matter of personal conscience to me? How can I love you if you don't agree with me? That's the question. So here are some principles to consider as we go through this passage. And if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans 14, because we're going to go through this uh, verse by verse here. Number one, um, we must learn to accept weaker believers. Verse one says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So a mature believer should recognize that new believers are weak. That is that they are immature. They haven't been taught everything that that mature believer has been taught. But that means that there's room for growth in the new believer. And if immature believers come into the assembly, they should be welcomed with open arms, not so that we can dispute with them and fight with them and argue with them over these non-essential issues, but rather that the, um, you know, as they come in, young believers often bring a whole lot of baggage with them And we need to know that the Lord loves them and they need to know that the Lord loves them and is at work in their life, causing them to grow and develop as new believers. And so the Lord wants all of us to grow to full maturity and none of us are there yet. All of us have issues that we are still working through in our our hearts and our minds. Um, And so we're not gonna reach full maturity until we see Jesus face to face, and then we will be like him, and all of this stuff will be passed away. But, but maturity does not happen in a day. So as new believers come in, acceptance creates opportunity for growth in their lives. Rejection and disputes cause believers to stumble and fall. So we must learn to accept weaker believers. Number two, We must not judge another believer's faith. So in verses 2 and 3, it says this, For one believes... Okay, so when we see that word believes, we're talking about their faith. I have faith to eat meat, or I don't have faith to eat meat. I have faith uh, that I should... should, uh, separate one day as special to the Lord. Or I have more faith and say, you don't have to do that. So this is what Paul's saying. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So here you have a a strong believer, and the strong believer has read the scripture from cover to cover. He has studied the Bible. He's been a Christian for years and years and years, and he recognizes that in the Old Testament, there were certain dietary laws that were given to the Jews for a time. He also realizes that um, the Lord talked about dietary laws, And Paul talked about dietary laws in the New Testament. 
And he knows all those things. And so based on that, he has made a uh, step of faith. And he says, I can eat whatever is put in front of me. It doesn't matter. So that's his faith. But a new believer who may have come out of Judaism or some other um, background, he may have been raised uh, in India and has taught all of his life that it's wrong to eat meat. Or he may have been raised in a vegan or vegetarian household where the doctrine of meat avoidance was drilled into him from his youth. So they naturally disagree with eating meat altogether, uh, and especially with us who are carnivores. Um, Or it could be a young Jewish person who was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and was taught to avoid food that is not kosher. I had an experience when I grew up in my high school about half of the students were Chinese and about half of the students were Jewish. And then there were a few of us who weren't either. And I remember inviting a friend over to church on Sunday. He was a Jewish guy and he said, I'll go to church if you go with me to the synagogue. I said, okay, I could do that. And so on Sunday, he came to church with us and I said, hey, let's go out and I'll, take, I'll treat you to McDonald's. And McDonald's was new at that time. It was a brand new restaurant in, in the area. And so he walked up to the counter and he take a, took a look at the menu and he said to the guy that was uh, serving, is your meat kosher? I'd never heard that term before. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I thought, what are you talking about? And the guy said, and the, and the, the, the person uh, serving was kind of stunned with the question too. And he goes, What? And he goes, is your meat kosher? He goes, I don't even know what that means. He asks his boss, is our meat kosher? He goes, no. (laughs) And that was the first experience I had with somebody who had dietary restrictions uh, for religious reasons. And um, so all I'm saying is people come to know the Lord. They may carry all of this with them into salvation, and into uh, being part of the church. And all of these individuals are now fellowshipping together in the same church, but they're different from one another. They're not all the same, and they don't all believe the same. But the issue here is one of faith. A mature believer has enough faith to believe that he may eat all things because Jesus said, "'Are you thus without understanding also?' Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? But the weak or younger believer has not heard such teaching before. They're brand new in the, in the faith. They don't know that. So his faith is weak at this point in his Christian experience. Now, we may eventually have the opportunity to teach them properly from the Scripture, but we must not judge his immature faith, his weak faith. He continues to believe that what he is doing is pleasing to the Lord. So according to his faith, let him live that way for the time being until he is more mature. A strong believer must not despise an immature believer for being a vegetarian. A young believer must not judge a strong believer for eating meat because God accepts a person at whatever faith level they're at. As a father, 
I accepted my children and the things that they did as infants. I also accepted them when they were weak toddlers. I also accepted them when they were untaught adolescents. And I even accept them now as mature adults. If I can do that as a father in a family, how much more our Heavenly Father does that towards His children. He accepts believers at whatever spiritual maturity level they're at. He accepts you at your current level of spiritual maturity. But hold on for the ride because God has not completed His work in you. And He will continue His work in your heart to cause you to grow and to mature in your understanding of biblical truths. God accepts both strong and weak believers, and we must also. Love doesn't judge another believer's faith. Number three, we must recognize that God is uh, the judge. Who are you to judge um, another's servant? Paul says in verse four, to his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now, this is interesting, okay? We like to judge other people, but guess what? God didn't make you the judge, and he didn't make me the judge either. The weak brother is a servant of the Lord, isn't he? Just as you are. And he is accountable to the Lord, just as you are. And even if he is weak in the faith, the Lord will base his approval on his level of maturity. In secondary matters, the weaker brother is not accountable to anyone but the Lord. And the fact is that the Lord will approve him on that day and will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if the weaker brother lives up to the faith that he already has. So that's the key as far as who's the judge and who's not the judge. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, Paul says in Colossians, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Number four, you must be fully convinced of the Lord's will in your own mind. In verse 5, Paul says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. <clears throat> what if an Orthodox Jewish man comes to know the Lord, and he knows that he is saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, and not by law-keeping, but because of his upbringing, he still believes and feels that the Sabbath should be observed. So from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday, he restricts his buying and selling, working and playing because he believes following the Old Testament pattern actually honors the Lord. He's convinced of this in his own mind. What would you tell him? You should do what, is, what you're convinced in your own mind to do. The movie Chariots of Fire. How many of you saw that movie, by the way? Remember it? Okay, well, if you don't know it, it's a story of a man um, who's, uh, 
who based it is based on the life and convictions of a Scottish man who was raised by missionary parents. Uh, Liddell was his last name, uh, Eric Little. Um, and he was an Olympic runner. And in the Olympics, I forget what year it was, um, his race that he had trained for, that he had been selected to run, was going to be held on Sunday. Now, he was raised in a Scottish home from, the, um, uh, from a family, uh, I think maybe Presbyterians, I forget, but uh, they, they really believed that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath, and you were to not do anything apart from going to church and worshiping the Lord and praying on, the, on Sunday. And, and uh, he had been convicted of this himself all through his life. And he held to this belief, to this conviction, that this was a day where I must honor the Lord. And so here is this Olympic runner who is scheduled to speak, uh, to, to uh, run on a Sunday, and he refused to do it. And even the King of England came to him and, and urged him to run and put serious pressure on him, and he wouldn't bow down from his conviction. And at the last minute, somebody ran in his place, and he was able to run a substitution race on a different day. And before he ran that race, somebody handed him a slip of paper that said, those who honor me, I will honor. It's very interesting. Now, do you believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath? Probably most of you don't. Some of you may. But to Eric Little, that was his conviction. And he stood by his conviction. And the Lord honored um, him for his convictions. In his book, Eat More Chicken, Inspire More People, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, wrote, Closing our business on Sunday... The Lord's Day is our way of honoring God and showing our loyalty to Him. That was His conviction before the Lord. And to this day, Chick-fil-A remains closed. I don't know if you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A. I don't care what day of the week you're there, except for Sundays because it's not open. But any day of the week, that place is packed. It's crowded. They could make a heap of money on Sundays as people leave church and go for their chicken dinner. But they refused to do it because that was the conviction of the founder of Chick-fil-A because he wanted to honor God, uh, and God has seemed to honor that conviction. But what if a person didn't grow up under those circumstances and sees no need to set aside Sunday or Saturday uh, and simply says, look, there's nothing special about Saturday. There's nothing special about Sunday. I'm going to honor the Lord every day because the Bible says this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You can read that in the scripture any day of the week, and it's true any day of the week. And so I'm not going to have these rules and regulations governing me. Instead, I'm going to just worship and honor the Lord every day. And that believer has no conscience about buying or selling or working or playing on Saturday or Sunday. 
The principle here is that whatever you do, whatever your conviction is, whatever your conscience tells you you must do, uh, then and, and you do it to please the Lord, whether you do it for one day of the week or another day of the week, there's no, it, this is a matter of moral indifference, okay? It's not an issue of the fundamentals of the faith. Christians on both sides of this issue, no matter what side they stand on, they want to please the Lord. If somebody says, I'm going to make Sunday the special day and worship the Lord more intently on Sunday, go for it. If another person says, I want to worship the Lord every day and serve Him every day, I'm going to say, go for it. In both cases, they want to serve and worship the Lord. So be convinced in your own mind about how you observe Saturday or Sunday. Be convinced in your own mind whether you observe Jewish feasts or not. Be convinced in your own mind whether you eat meat or are vegan or vegetarian. Be convinced in your own mind whether it is right to drink um, or wine or abstain. Be convinced in your own mind that whatever you choose to do is pleasing to the Lord. All right, number five, can you give thanks to the Lord for your actions? Verses six through eight, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So if a person observes one day above another and uses it to worship the Lord and thank Him, then God is praised. If another person worships and thanks the Lord every day and lives each day to please the Lord, then God is praised. Let a man who restricts his diet to vegetables give thanks to the Lord. And let every man who eats every kind of meat bow his head in gratitude and thanks to the Lord. In both cases, God is thanked. Paul writes in a very balanced way in 1 Timothy 4, 3-5 about false teachers who come into the church and try to disrupt the church and, and cause tension and division over secondary matters. And he says, they come in forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So the question for you this morning is this, can you eat freely anything that is put before you and give thanks to the Lord? If you can do that, then eat freely. Can you eat with restrictions and give thanks to the Lord? Then that's what you should do. The principle here is whether you can maintain your view on these secondary issues and still give thanks to the Lord. Or or does your, um, uh, does your view make you grumble and complain against the Lord and against others who don't follow your point of view? Okay? Can you give thanks to the Lord in whatever you do? 
Listen, the Lord is watching everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. Can you look at your weaker brother or sister and say, you know what, they're different than me, but I thank God for them. Can you look at your brother and sister and say, you know what, they're stronger than me in this area. I don't understand why they do certain things the way they do, but nevertheless, I love them, and so does the Lord, and I give thanks to the Lord for them. That's what the Lord wants us to do. All right, number six. Are you ready to give an account of your own life before God? In uh, verses 9 through 13, Paul says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? And why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Jesus died on the cross, rose again to be your Savior, but he also died on the cross and was raised again to be your Lord, the one who is supreme over you. Paul emphasizes the lordship of Jesus Christ in every believer's life in this passage. Remember, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we read this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then you will want to do whatever it is that pleases Him as your Master and Lord. And so we should ask ourselves before we do anything in life, is this action pleasing to the Lord? Does this reflect the fact that Jesus is Lord of my life. We are His in life, and we are His in death. And one day, we will stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's not a place where He decides whether you go to heaven or you don't go to heaven. That's already a matter that's settled by having faith in Him here and now. But the judgment seat of Christ has to do with rewards, It has to do with our life lived out for the Lord. And there I want to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest, or my rest. I don't want to be there and have the Lord say, you know, why did you fight so much with the other saints? Why did you not accept them where they were at in their faith? Why did you discourage them? Why did you cause them to stumble? I don't want to hear any of that. And I hope you don't want to hear it either. But in that day, and we should be doing it now, every knee will bow and call him Lord. So then each of us shall give an account, listen carefully, of himself to the Lord. Well, that's interesting. So you mean my judgment of weaker believers, I don't have to give an account of them before the Lord? No, I don't. So I'm not going to be there and the Lord say, well, what did you think about sister so-and-so? And what did you think about brother, you know, what's his name? Did they live according to their faith? 
I'm not going to be there standing in judgment of them. It's the Lord who is the judge at the judgment seat of Christ. And I won't answer for you for how closely you, you followed your conscience. I will answer for my own life, and you will answer for your own. Did I follow my own conscience? Did I submit to the Lordship of Christ? Let the judgment be a time of reward for us and not a time of rebuke for our attitudes. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Okay, number seven. Don't stumble a weaker brother. And I'm going to look at two verses here, uh, the end of verse 13 and then also verse 21. But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And then verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Americans love to flaunt liberties, you know, and, and I have a right, I have a right, I have a right. I hear that all the time. Well, some years ago, a man came into my office and told me that before he was saved, he had been an alcoholic and had been an alcoholic for years. And even after becoming a Christian, he struggled with alcoholism uh, for many, many years and had great struggles and temptations to return to the bottle. But he says, you know, finally, that chapter of my life is behind me. It's no longer a temptation to me. I no longer struggle uh, with this area. And then as we talked on and on, uh, it turned out that he said to me that his wife continued to drink in the home all the time through his struggles. And she would drink in front of him and while he was trying to turn away from the bottle. And while he struggled with his addiction, his own wife was putting a stumbling block in his way. Now, alcohol has never had an appeal to me, never. Uh, but it sure has an attraction to some people. Some believers do drink wine with their meals or other alcoholic beverages. And I know that that can actually stumble weaker believers. Um, I believe that my grandparents may have had trouble with alcohol. And the reason I say that, I don't know for sure, but the reason I say that, in the old family Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, it gives you know, their names and date of birth and marriage and all this kind of stuff. But there's actually, there was actually included a document um, that they wrote out together and signed uh, saying that they would not touch alcohol in their home. They would not have a drink ever again in their life. And I thought, wow, imagine that, that this was such an issue to them that they actually pledged before each other and before God never to touch a drop again. You know, you may feel the liberty to drink, but we also have to say that there are younger believers, weaker believers, maybe people who have struggled with alcohol who are watching. And uh, don't let your liberty become a stumbling block to them or cause them to fall. If I argue that I have the liberty, the freedom to drink socially or in moderation, a weaker believer may look at me and say, well, if he can do it in moderation, so can I. 
but the temptation that he has may be much greater. And when alcohol enters into him and rages in his body, he becomes addicted once more and his life is ruined. It is better for me not to drink than to stumble, offend, or make weak uh, my brother and cause him to fall. I don't want to be responsible for stumbling another believer. Now, the same thing applies to meat offered to idols. Suppose I witness to a Muslim and he becomes a Christian. And suppose I go to the market where he normally buys food and I, and I buy meat from this marketplace. Well, the meat is halal. It's, it's, uh, it's like kosher meat to the Muslim. And what that means is that it has to be prepared in a specific way. It's very clean in the process of, um, of butchering the meat. But the name of Allah is pronounced over the food as it's being butchered. Now, if he cuts ties with his Muslim ways and it goes against his conscience, then I would rather never eat halal meat ever. There's no reason for me to do that and stumble my newfound, former Muslim, now Christian brother. Or suppose I lead an Asian person to the Lord and he grew up where um, idolatry was prevalent in the home. And all of the food in his table, uh, in his home, every day that was being prepared was offered to idols in the home as a prayer to the idols. Now, as a believer, he seeks to serve the Lord with a clear conscience. And so he avoids all meat offered to idols, and, and particularly the idols that he used to worship. But suppose I invite him after a Sunday message out to the Chinese food place just down the street. And we walk in, and there's a Buddha sitting there with food in front of it. As an, it's an idol with food offered to it in worship. And he stumbled by that. And I tell him, well, I'm going to eat there anyway, because I like Chinese food. You go down to Chick-fil-A and wait till Monday, <laughs> you know, or something like that. If that's my attitude, I'm going to cause him to stumble. So he falls. Then I have sinned by stumbling the one for whom Christ died. It's interesting to note that in the early church, um, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, a decree was issued forbidding believers to eat meat offered to idols. That's in your Bible, in Acts chapter 15. This decree was to prevent believers from stumbling or falling into sin or from causing others to stumble. But later in the scripture, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, we don't have time to read it all, Paul writes extensively on this subject, confirming that believers can eat meat offered to idols. You say, wow, is there confusion in the Bible? No. Uh, Paul writes that because idols are nothing and that there is only one God, it's kind of meaningless when you offer meat to idols. But even there in chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, he acknowledges that not everyone receives this teaching. Not everyone is mature enough to understand this. Some weaker Christians, less mature Christians, newer Christians may still stumble on these things. And so Paul says, look, just because you as believers now have this knowledge that it's okay to eat anything, 
don't let your knowledge puff you up, but rather um, uh, respond in love to those who still have scruples in this area. Okay, number eight, does your action violate your conscience? Paul says in verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So when Paul says there is nothing unclean here, he's referring to food and drink, not to the fundamentals of the faith, not to moral sins. He speaks with authority because he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus. This means that he knows these things because of what the Lord Jesus taught uh, as we referred to earlier, Mark 7, 19, where Jesus said all foods are clean. However, that doesn't change the fact that some people still would feel guilty uh, eating certain foods or working on the Sabbath or so on. And, and maybe it's their upbringing. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. Maybe it's because they have not yet been taught. But for some reason, their conscience is still sensitive to these issues, and they believe they should not eat. If that's how a person thinks, then they should not eat because that would defile their conscience. With further study of the Scripture, the Lord will give them more light, and then they can walk in that new light that they have received. But until then, they should follow their conscience so they do not sin. Okay, number nine, are you walking in love? Verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you know, are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy uh, with your food the one for whom Christ died. And so this is a guiding principle for those who don't have scruples about food or drink. I may be convinced it's legitimate to drink wine with a meal. If my brother comes over to dinner who thinks it's wrong or has been saved out of alcoholism, and I pull out the bottle and I drink before him, am I showing love? No. A dear young believer has a conscience about, against eating pork, and I go ahead and I serve him ham and eggs. Am I walking in love? No. And if my ex-Mormon now saved neighbor has a conscience about caffeinated drinks and I pour him a cup of coffee, am I walking in love? No. I'm not walking in love because I'm causing these brothers to stumble. Uh, to have a guilty conscience, just because I want to satisfy my legitimate rights. How can I do such a thing to the ones for whom Christ died? We've got to move on quickly. So number 10, concentrate on what is important. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men." The kingdom of God is not a bunch of rules and regulations concerning what we can and cannot do. The more important things that we should concentrate on in, as a believer are things like righteousness, how to live in a right way before the Lord, peace, how to bring about peace and harmony among believers, and joy um, instead of putting your own interests first. Number 11, will your action create peace? Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. Paul urged the Galatian church to love one another and warned against fighting on secondary issues when he said, but if you bite and devour one another, 
Beware lest you be consumed by one another. Fighting over secondary issues will destroy other believers, and it may even destroy an entire local assembly. Number 12, will your action edify? Pursue the things by which you may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. You know, the goal here is not to criticize and tear people down. The goal as a believer is to edify or to build up other believers. And the word edify means that, to build up other believers. Look for ways where you can help other believers grow. Finally, number 13, is your action doubtful? Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. In the context here, Paul means, look, if you're a strong believer and you recognize the liberties you have in Christ and you realize that you can do many of the things that, that others forbid and you're not weighed down with guilt in doing it, then you should do this privately and not in front of other people. You know that you can eat meat offered to idols because idols are nothing. You realize you can enjoy a glass of wine with a meal because you're not tempted to excess. And you can receive all these things with thanksgiving to the Lord. Well, you're blessed in your faith. You have grown in your faith to the point where you recognize what the Scripture teaches. But have this faith to yourself. Don't go around boasting of your freedom and liberties and parade your liberties before others who are weak in the faith. Don't stumble, young believers, or those who are weak in faith. Enjoy your liberties in private. However, if even you have doubts about some of these things, then don't go ahead and override your conscience. If you cannot put that glass of wine to your lips without a tinge of guilt or looking both ways to see if anybody's looking, then that probably tells me something about where your conscience is at. You're not acting in faith. If your conscience is condemning you, if you say you have liberties in these areas, but your conscience slays you, then you're condemning yourself for whatever is not from faith is sin. The whole area of Christian liberty can be summed up in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. That is, not all things are profitable for the sake of others. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Love for one another will lead us even to forgo our own liberties so we don't trip up weaker believers. I hope this was helpful. I hope that, you, that it changes the way you think, the way you live your lives before other believers. And uh, we are way over time. That was condensing two messages into one this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we uh, are planning to have the, the um, potluck, and we do expect that there will be unbelievers here, and we hope you will invite your friends as well. And so we put the two messages together this week so that we can have a gospel message next week. So bring your friends and let them hear the good news of salvation.
So we'll forego the closing hymn and let's just uh, end in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love one another and to demonstrate that love in the way we act toward each other, the way we think of each other, the way we behave in our Christian life. Lord, we pray that we would never stumble another believer by our, uh, because of our liberties that we have in you. Help us, Lord, to, uh, if we're weak in faith, to grow, to see the things that you have taught us, that we might enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ and the liberties that you have given to us. But we pray, Lord, that each of us might um, really concentrate on the bond of peace that holds us together and that we might love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.